0: As Cameron said, the reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 15. And that's on page 787 of the Church Bibles, or you can follow along on the screen or in your leaflets. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full, But if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins.
1: Self, so I haven't. Uh, we've been working through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it is uh, probably one of the most famous bits of Scripture. And I think it's fair to say that this morning, as we turn to the Lord's Prayer, we are turning to probably the most famous part of the most famous bit of Scripture, and that leads us into a fairly dangerous situation. Let me explain. Why, why is that dangerous? Well, ask anyone who lives next to a train line. The first time you visit someone who lives next to a train line, and you're in the house and the train goes past, you're there freaking out, thinking the train's going to come through the wall. But they don't even notice, do they? Because you just get used to it. Or imagine if you woke up to that view every single morning. That was the view out of your bedroom. Not just the train, but you get used to beauty, don't you? You just go, ah, look, another day. Okay. We need to fight this morning against this over-familiarity because Jesus teaches us here that is something really, really, really important. Not just something about prayer, we're going to learn lots about prayer, but we're also going to learn, once again, how to spot a fake. Because Jesus, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, has been contrasting real biblical religion against a fake religion, the religion of what he, uh, the religious leaders of the day, the scribes and the Pharisees, And it's a really important distinction. It's not just like the two Rolexes here, one real, one fake. Uh, It's not just cosmetic. It's much more significant than that. It's like placebo medication. You know, the, the sugar pill. It might make you feel good. It might trick you into feeling a little bit better. But at the end of the day, it doesn't actually work. Real Christianity, biblical Christianity, as compared to the religion of the scribes and the Pharisees, is the difference, not between the cosmetic exteriors, they just look a little bit different. No, they actually looked pretty much the same. The difference, though, was massively significant. Let me give you a couple of reasons why the difference really matter. Because it was actually meant the life of faith is meant to actually bring people to praise God. But when people see the religion of the scribes and the Pharisees, they think, I really don't want to be like that. So the first thing is, it, it doesn't work as an advertisement for God, which is what our faith is meant to be. But at the end of the day as well, it will not work. Matthew chapter, six, uh, chapter 5, verse 20 Jesus tells us that unless our righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. heaven. When it comes to the crunch, fake Christianity, the religion of the scribes and the Pharisees, is not real and it won't cut the mustard as they say. And so as we look at prayer this morning... We need to recognize that Jesus here is also speaking about something more, which is the heart of our faith. We're going to look at three points: in the heart, in the mouth, and weighing the heart. You'll find a sermon outline with most of what you need on there, if you're into the habit of taking notes or just working out roughly how much longer he's got to speak, uh, that is there. In the heart. Because Christianity, as Jesus lays it out, true biblical Christianity is a matter of the heart. And the contrast between the scribes and the Pharisees, the religion of Jesus' day, and what Jesus is speaking of as life in the kingdom of heaven, is a difference of who is in your heart. Sin, ultimately, is self worship it's having the self at the heart and Jesus here is telling us that in prayer we can take our sinful motivations to the very throne of God a couple of uh, years ago I went for a rich I went for a rich I went for a run with Richard McClellan uh, we met uh, over at Piccadilly and we ran to Mount Lofty most of the way. We walked bits of it, At the really nasty bits. But the funny thing was, there was a dog in a garden there at Piccadilly, uh, and he saw us run past. And the dog got out under the fence, and despite our best intentions, followed us all the way to the top of Mount Lofty, uh, kilometres away. And then he followed us all the way home as well, which was nice, and then went back in, and his owner was totally oblivious of the fact that the dog had been for some exercise that morning. But it's like that. Our sin can follow us into the throne room of God. And Jesus warns us. He warns us that we can be doing the best things, prayer, fasting, giving, For the worst motivations. He says, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. They love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Who are these people praying to? Who are they praying for? It's all about self, isn't it? It's all about a show. And the word hypocrite literally means, in the original language, an actor. These people are putting on a performance for an audience and the audience is not God. The audience is their peers. Their focus is on getting a reputation. Easy to spot in the Pharisees. How do we do it? Well, we're more subtle. We're more subtle. But I ask you, whenever you pray, where is your thought. If you're praying in a group, are you concerned that people might come up to you afterwards and say, I love it when you pray. So eloquent, so spiritual, you really catch. Be careful. Be careful if we look for those things, we could be playing very much into the hands of this sin. For those of us who pray up front, What is our focus? Are we performing for an audience? Or are we speaking to our Heavenly Father? Jesus warns us, sin is very subtle. And we can pray for all the wrong reasons. And we can pray in all the wrong ways. Verse 7, he says, When you pray, do not keep babbling like pagans. They think they'll be heard because of their many words. Perhaps these guys... Uh, There was magic incantations, you know, when you go into particularly eastern societies and they've got the prayer wheels. There's even some forms of Christianity and they've got their rituals where they follow bead after bead after bead on the rosary or whatever. And they go through and they perform thinking that somehow they might get God's attention. They might drag divinity's notice If I keep speaking, like the kid that goes and nags and nags. No one ever has that, do we? You know, do we think that it's technique? How would we know? We don't think that we will be heard for our many words. But have you ever asked yourself, am I praying right? Because if you're asking yourself that question, you are possibly erring in this direction it's easy to spot in others it's easy to pick on people who are different and people that we disagree with you know in some forms of christianity there's a name it and claim it kind of thing if i speak certain words in certain formulas god will give this to me i've had friends from a charismatic or pentecostal perspective tell me that praying in tongues is more effective than praying in normal language Easier to spot in others. What's our technique? Do we just add in Jesus' name and think this is a somehow seal that God should give me everything I ask for? Do we have a no Bible, no breakfast mentality that God will hear me because I pray so spiritual before I eat in the morning and I have this dogged routine? Can I say, routine's good. But if our trust is in technique, if our trust is in the fact that we do it at the same time every day, or we pray in certain ways, or if our trust is perhaps even in the fact that I use the very words of the Lord's Prayer, if our trust is in technique, it's still all about me. If I do it the right way, I will get what I want. The basis of the relationship that Jesus is talking about here is contractual. It's a fee for service. You do it the right way and you get the reward. You know, you you ring up the tradesman, tradeswoman, turn up at your house, they do the job, they send you the bill, they get paid, hopefully. Okay. You stand up, you pray before people, you're after rewards, you do the service, you get the reward. You pray in the right way, you think that God should honour it. You get what you want. The whole basis of the relationship that you have is one that says, I've done my part. Give me what I'm due. Whether you're seeking a claim from others, whether you're seeking answers from God because you pray the right way, Jesus is saying, it does not work. This is not real Christian prayer. And this is the danger It's not just talking about prayer, but it is talking about prayer. It's talking about the whole Christian life. We can think that if we do the right things in the right way, God will honour us. God will give us a good life. God will give us a happy life. If I raise my children in a particular way, God will make them turn out happy and perfect. No problems. Jesus is saying... What you are doing is you are using God like you're looking for a payment from an employer for your services offered. That's not the way real Christianity works. So if we can't have self, who do we have? Well, we have our Father in heaven all the way through Jesus refers to God as Father. Now, this wasn't unheard of in Jewish circles at the time, but it was very rare. They loved the lofty language. King of the universe. Sovereign Lord. Jesus says, when we pray, we pray to our Father. Let me explore this a little bit. Now... I have a relationship with Her Majesty the Queen, as you all do as well. We are subjects of her realm. It's a real relationship, yes, but hardly warm and personal. If I ring up and say I would like to speak to the Queen, I don't imagine my phone call would get through. If I just rocked up at Buckingham Palace and walked in and expected to sit down at the dinner table with her, I imagine... I'd probably be tackled by the security guards in the foyer. I have a real relationship, but one that is distant and removed. But imagine, imagine if the queen was your mother. She's still the queen, but you could call her not your majesty, but Mum. You could go and sit down at the dinner table and no one would blink an eyelid. You could ring her on her personal mobile, I presume she has one, and she'd take your call. The sovereign Lord of the universe, the king of all creation, his firstborn son says, you, citizens of the kingdom, Can call him what I call him, Dad, Father, our Father in heaven. And so when we come to him in prayer, we don't come thinking about ourselves, we come thinking about him. We come with confidence, we come knowing that he wants to bless us more than we even want to be blessed ourselves. Our desires are little. His desires for us are out of this world. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it brilliantly. He says, I must get rid of the thought that God is standing between me and my desires for what is best for me. That I have to twist God's arm. That I have to harangue him into giving me good stuff. I must see God as my father who has purchased my ultimate good in Christ. And is waiting to bless me with his own fullness in Christ. It's ours, if we are his children by faith. It is ours, and he is our Father. So, how does that in the heart translate to in the mouth? Jesus gives us the answer. This then is how you should how you should pray. Now, Jesus is not giving us a mantra. One of the great tragedies of the, of the uh, Lord's Prayer is that people use it by rote. And that's what they pray and that's all they pray. And they treat it like babbling like the pagans, like trusting in technique. If I use this, it's good to pray the Lord's Prayer, can I say. We do it very deliberately. And one of the reasons is I want the Lord's Prayer to be in your hearts and in your souls, in your minds. Not as a mantra, but as a framework. Because Jesus is saying, when you pray, not that you must use these words, but these are your priorities. This is the skeleton of your prayer, and you can put flesh on the bones, but this is the priorities, this is the kind of things that you should be praying about. The Lord's Prayer is not a mantra. It's a framework. It's not the end, it's the skeleton that gives us the structure that we then fill out. For those who want to take this further, can I suggest there's a great little resource, uh, Seven Days of Prayer with Jesus by John Smed. Uh, it takes you through using the Lord's Prayer uh, in your daily pattern. His thing is, he splits it into seven and he prays one thing every day. You don't have to do that. I use the Lord's Prayer and I've Unpack each of the elements uh, because I find that helpful and I think that's what Jesus intended for us. But Jesus asks us to pray to His Father as our Father. Quick aside, we've talked about this, but quick aside, He doesn't invite you to pray to His Father as my Father in heaven. This is not just a prayer to focus on self, it's a prayer to focus on others. It's a prayer to pray for others, not just those inside the church, but it's a prayer to pray for the world. Get the big perspective. And the first three petitions Jesus takes us to in prayer all focus on God. Hallowed be your name. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your name be regarded by people, both inside the church and outside the church, As holy, may there be an awe, a reverence, a holy fear of you before all prayer. This is a prayer for those inside the church. It's a prayer for us that we might grow in our vision of God. As we sang this morning, behold our God, that we might see him more clearly. But it's also a prayer for mission, that those who disregard God, might come to see him as holy. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. A prayer that God's rule would be extended, both in the church, in the lives of individuals, but as Christ returns when all creation bows the knee and declares that God is king. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. A prayer for those inside that we might grow in our knowledge of God's will, our obedience to God's will, but that our society might be ordered by God's priorities, that we might see God's blueprint for life made real within this world. He moves from God first, very deliberate point there, Jesus. Take eyes off self, put eyes on our heavenly Father, pray for his glory, his priorities, his rule, and then we turn to ourselves. Give us today our daily bread. A recognition. Much easier in Jesus' day where there was no refrigerators, where much of the population lived hand to mouth, A recognition that our basic needs come from God. This prayer reminds us of that. As we come to God acknowledging that it's not our skill, it's not our wealth, it's not our resources. It is from the very hand of our loving Heavenly Father that puts food on our table and clothes on our back. We respond in thanks. Give us today our daily bread. Note that Jesus is not telling us to pray for abundance. He's not telling us to pray for excess. Give us what we need, is what he's saying. Maybe we should recalibrate some of that. Forgive us our debts, Jesus encourages us to pray, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now the word here... It literally does mean debt. It's something that you owe. But interpreting it with verses 14 and 15, where it does speak of sin, what we see is that our debt to God is the debt incurred by our sin. Jesus points to the fact that his disciples, even though they are inside the kingdom, even though they have come in through the forgiveness that is made available by the grace of God, they need forgiveness now we don't fall in and out of the kingdom we don't fall in and out of our relationship with God when I offend my parents I don't all of a sudden stop being their son but there is something that stands in our relationship that I need to set right that is the relationship that Jesus encourages us to have we have security because we are loved children of the father and we can come and Jesus says we should come acknowledging our fault, acknowledging our debt, knowing that his forgiveness is ours. Sometimes Christians get hung up, look I've been forgiven, why do I need, if all my sin has been paid for in the cross, why do I need to come back? They talk about it as miserable sinner Christianity. I think we lose the point. Sin's power has been broken. Sin's penalty has been paid, but sin remains until Christ's return. And a healthy pattern of repentance, coming to God, asking for his forgiveness, acknowledging our fault, knowing it is ours, takes us back again and again and again to the grace of God that is ours in the cross. If we don't have a healthy pattern of repentance... It is very easy to fall into a pattern like the scribes and the Pharisees to think that God owes us because we are doing so many good things for him. No, forgive us our debts. We'll come back to the apparent condition. Lastly, Jesus encourages us to pray that we are not led into temptation or testing. Deliver us from the evil one. It's an acknowledgement that our paths are seldom straight. That God, in his purposes, does allow our faith to be tested. But that's not something that we as Christians should long for. Yes, bring it on! We ask, as Jesus asked, let this cup pass from me knowing that his purposes might be other. 1 Peter 1 says this, talking about the faith and the future that is ours, he says, In all of this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Why? These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes though refined by fire may result in praise glory and honor when christ is revealed god does use testing to refine us but jesus says it's valid it's right it's an appropriate thing for us to pray that god save us and preserve us in that testing there's the prayer You can fill out the blanks. It's worth sitting down with each of those statements and thinking about all the kind of things you could pray underneath them as headings. But we need to recognise that Jesus gives us this teaching in the context of talking about religious hypocrisy. He gives us this teaching to help us distinguish real, authentic, biblical faith from the religion of the scribes and the Pharisees, he gives us this teaching to help us discern whether perhaps we see our relationship with God as a contractual one. I do my bit, you do your bit. Or whether we see it as a relationship of a child to a father. When you go for a job, you have your resume, don't you? You have all the reasons why you're the right person for the job and if you get the job, you're expected to perform and when you do perform, you get the paycheck. Now, what qualifications do you need to be born into a family? The will of the, of the, of the, the parents. It's not about you at all. Parents, we didn't get to pick the kids, did we? Our parents didn't get to pick us. You are born into a family, and as the kids talk from Nicodemus remind us, we are reborn into God's family by grace. Is our relationship with God, do we see it as we pray, but not only as we pray, as something that I do my part, God, you do your part, or is it one that depends upon his grace? Prayer really is a litmus test. Do we seek results or a relationship? Do we come away from prayer thinking, did that work? Did I get what I asked for? Think about it. For those of us who are parents, not hard. For those who are kids, put yourself in your mum and dad's place. If the only time your children actually wanted to talk to you was when they wanted something from you, how would you feel that your relationship with your child was going? Not good, is it? When you speak to your parents, do you get off the phone or come away from the conversation and go, I'm not sure if that worked? Or did you think it was just great to have a conversation? Do we see our relationship with God as contractual or family? Lloyd Jones again says that the ultimate test of every person's profession of faith is they can say with confidence and assurance, my father. Not just in your head, but that you have your heart saying, God is my father. I speak to him. I relate to him. I live in relationship with him, not by the stuff I do expecting him to give in return, but the fact that I am his child by his grace back at the start of the sermon on the mount you remember the first of the beatitudes blessed are the poor in spirit the one that recognizes they have nothing to offer the holy spirit in john 17 i think it's john 17 roughly around there anyway jesus tells us that his job is to convict us of sin God, by his Spirit, strips away pretense, brings us to that poverty, that awareness of need, makes us turn from ourselves because we see self as fruitless, as powerless. It makes us turn away. He makes us turn away from the false foundations of our own performance that we want to build our own righteousness on and to put our trust in God. And once we do that, the grace that is ours transforms us. Because when we speak of grace, it's not just a word, it's not just an idea. The grace of God comes to us through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus as the Holy Spirit takes that victory and works it into our lives. The Spirit is called the spirit of adoption by Paul, the spirit by whom we are adopted into God's family, the spirit who testifies with our spirit that we are his children, that cries, as Paul says in Romans 8, Abba, Dad. That is the relationship God has given us by his grace. Jesus gives us a capacity to evaluate that he gives us a test a litmus test so to speak that shows us whether that is how we operate are we operating as children by grace or as employees by works what's his litmus test forgiveness it's there in the lord's prayer forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors in case we didn't get it a verse later he comes back to it and if you forgive other people when they sin against you your heavenly father will also forgive you but if you do not forgive others their sins your your father will not forgive your sins now it's easy to be completely freaked out by this isn't it <laughs> is jesus saying that if i forgive others i'll be forgiven that a consequence, that a condition of my own forgiveness is that I forgive others. Sounds a lot like works, doesn't it? Jesus, though, his perspective is one of the end, where at judgment, God grants forgiveness. It's ours now, but there will be a final judgment. And Jesus says... The reality of our faith now and the guarantee of our future forgiveness is seen in the fact that our forgiveness works out in forgiving others. It's not a condition, but it's a consequence of us having been forgiven. So Jesus is saying the reality, the authenticity of your faith is seen in as much you grasp that you are poor in spirit. That you have nothing to offer. That you need grace each and every day. And when we are in that situation and someone sins against us and we know how much we have been forgiven, surely we will then forgive jesus told the parable didn't he you know the servant who owes the king billions of dollars the king is going to levy judgment against him cast him into jail the man begs for mercy and is forgiven his debt he walks out and he finds another servant who owes him 20 bucks and he chokes that man and he throws him into jail. The guy begs for mercy as he himself begs for mercy. But there is no mercy. And Jesus says, the other servants came before the king and said, this is what's happened. And the king was outraged. As we have been forgiven a debt of infinite value, Jesus says, that overflows And as a consequence of us understanding that, we so forgive. But how? It's hard, isn't it? But we have one who prayed the Lord's Prayer for us. In Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, Your will be done, not mine. On the cross, he prayed, forgive us, forgive them, their sins. And it was his death that made that possible. That our sins might be washed clean, that the forgiveness that comes to us might not just result in our acquittal, but our adoption as the Father and the Son pour the spirit of adoption into our hearts, that let us come to him, let us pray to him, our Father, let us live, not with a contract based on performance, but in a relationship that is framed and empowered by grace. Let's pray to our Father now. Father we ask we ask that you would open our eyes that we might behold your love that we might truly see that we are children not by our own merits not by our own efforts but only through your grace and Father we ask that we would turn away that you would turn our hearts away from the need to prove ourselves, the need to perform, and that we might look to the performance of our brother Christ, the proof that he offered through his death and resurrection, which overflows to us. Father, let us live in your grace. And in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Mark's going to come now.